Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, buddy. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. We've got a controversial subject today. We've got a revision. Gavin Mortimer, he's been on the podcast before, he's a historian. He has written a new biography of the Phantom Major. David Sterling, the man who founded the SAS. Gavin Mortimer says he's the phony major. Was Sterling a military genius, a maverick thinker, or was he just a master manipulator? Good with spin. Wrote his own legacy. As Churchill once said, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. Is that what Sterling did as well? Sterling was a Scottish aristocrat. He came from a very military family. He was descended from a long line of Highland warriors. And he was instrumental in the founding of the Special Air Service, the SES, and an organisation which helped to well, pioneer really special forces operations. The idea that a small number of highly motivated, well-armed, highly trained and efficient troops can have a disproportionate impact on the wider battle in the theatre in which they're operating. And in this episode, we discuss the formation of the SAS, we discuss Sterling, we talk about his older brother, but we also talk about the legendary Robert Blair, a.k.a. Paddy Main. Paddy Main was from Northern Ireland. He died in a car crash age 40. We talked about him on this podcast, so please go back and listen to previous episodes. Paddy Main had been to South Africa in 1938 as a member of the British and Irish Lions rugby squad. He was an exceptional athlete, an exceptional soldier. And when you do talk to those early veterans, the special forces of the Long Range Desert Group of the SAS, they do tend, in my experience, to talk about Paddy Main more than Sterling. But Gavin Mortimer has conducted a far more systematic investigation into the genesis of the SAS. And what he has to say is actually quite shocking. If you wish to listen to those other SAS podcasts, we've got lots of them, actually. They're all available on History Hit TV. You may have seen in Vogue the other day that very classy publication magazine. They recommended History at TV as one of the best subscriptions on the planet. So thank you very much to them. If you want to do what Vogue say and me, you can go to History Hit TV. If you follow the link in the description of this podcast, you'll get taken straight there on the interweb. Just click it with your little old thumb right now. And you get two weeks free if you sign up today. And you can join the tens of thousands of people subscribing to History at TV, fans of Vogue and fans of World War II military history. That happy Venn diagram that I never thought had much interlocking area, but maybe it does. So head over to History at TV, check it out. But in the meantime, folks, here's Gavin Mortimer talking about David Sterling. Enjoy. Gavin, thanks for coming on the show. A pleasure to be here, Dan. You're really going for it on this one. It's controversial <laughs> stuff. <laughs> 
It is, but it's a story that needs to be told. And uh, I am revising The Revisionist, the revisionist being David Sterling, who has got away for more than half a century with this portrayal of himself as a daring, dashing, guerrilla genius. And that is not the case. Well, let's talk about what we think we know about David Sterling. Characterise his reputation for me. His reputation is one of the most fearless guerrilla fighters of the Second World War, perhaps of British history. A man who obviously founded the SAS and then led it fearlessly and with great skill throughout the Western Desert from November 1941 until his capture in January 43, and was the man who had the ear of Churchill, who even uh, stood up to Montgomery and was charismatic and the scourge of the Nazis, the phantom major, the man who Rommel wanted to capture above anyone else. And it's just not true. We're going to get tweets on this one, buddy. We're going to get tweets. (laughs) Who is responsible for that account of Sterling's career? Is that something he wrote about after the war or his comrades? It's himself. He was a wonderful self-publicist. Humble brag, I think, is the modern vernacular. So he was someone who would always say, well, I don't like to talk about myself. But he did. That was his favourite hobby. Now, immediately after the war, for 10 years after the war, Sterling had nothing to do with the army, nothing to do with the SAS. And what changed was the death of Paddy Main in um, 1955. A quick resume of Paddy Main. Blair Main was his name, but he was known as Paddy Main throughout the army. He was a rugby international before the war, and he was everything that David Sterling wanted to be. He was the fearless guerrilla fighter, the genius in war. And Sterling resented this fact. He became embittered, and he was particularly embittered with Main. Main didn't take David Sterling seriously as a guerrilla fighter. And this really caused in Sterling, as I said, a great resentment, a need for revenge in a way. And this was possible after Maine's death in a car crash in December 1955. And that's when Sterling, who at the time had been living in Southern Africa, in what is now Zimbabwe, he returned to the UK and he hired the services of Virginia Cowles, who was a society author who'd written a biography of Winston Churchill to great acclaim. And he really said to her, right, your job is to portray me as the buccaneer, as the man that we've just described. And Virginia Cowles, she was an American and was slightly in awe of the British upper class, which is very much what David Sterling was. He was a minor aristocracy. And so the book that came out, The Phantom Major, Sterling would have us believe this is what the Germans nicknamed him during the war, the Phantom Major. Utter nonsense. The person who came up with the nickname the Phantom Major was his great friend Randolph Churchill, a journalist by trade who in August 1942, the war in North Africa wasn't going very well. In general, it wasn't going very well. And he came up with this idea of the Phantom Major with the connivance of his father, Winston, who always had a soft spot for guerrilla fighters. And Sterling, as I said, he had charisma and he was a very good salesman. He was great at selling the idea of himself as this wondrous 
fighter. And so in September 1942, there are a slew of articles in the British press, the Phantom Major, who's got the Germans by the short and curlies. And this was the title of the book in 1958. And it came out, Dan, it was a very fortuitous timing. Not only was Maine dead, the last officer who could really challenge this new narrative of the SAS, but more importantly, Britain needed a hero. The Suez debacle had been 18 months earlier. The umpire was disintegrating. Britain's self-esteem was low. And then suddenly along comes a reminder of the glorious deeds of the war. And Sterling was very much portrayed as the new Elizabethan, as a buccaneer, like a 16th century Raleigh or Drake. And it worked. And the British public fell for it, helped by Sterling's coterie of upper-class, very well-connected friends, many of them in politics of a diplomatic service. And that's the myth that we've had today, and that's a myth that I'm challenging. Right, well, let's get into it. What do we know about his early life? Talk me through Sterling's birth and up to the um, outbreak of war. Okay, well, um, let's start then with the first fallacy. He was not born in Scotland. That's a received opinion. He was born in London in November 1915, the son of a brigadier general. And his mother was a formidable woman, an alpha female, Margaret, the daughter of a 13th Lord Lovett, who was aide-de-camp to Queen Victoria in the 1880s. And quite an important aspect of Stirling was that he had a speech impediment. And this was only solved when he was about five years old. And so for the first five years of his life, he was in a, a world of his own. He struggled to communicate. And this, I think, formed his personality. He lived in a little bit of a fantasy world. He became sulky if people couldn't understand him. He was irritable and he was insecure. And these were characteristics that he would take throughout his life. He was sent at an early age to Ampleforth College, sometimes described as the uh, Catholic Eton. Another thing I should point out, which is quite important, I think, is that his mother was a very devout Catholic. And he was homesick at Ampleforth. Unlike his two elder brothers, Bill Sterling and Peter Sterling, who flourished and excelled academically and athletically, David was rather lost and overawed at Ampleforth. And he was homesick and he really didn't thrive the way that his brothers did. And on leaving Ampleforth, he went up to Cambridge to study architecture. He lasted three terms there and then quit. And this is another feature of his personality. He was prone to quit, to walk away when things got tough. His brother, Bill, and his mother got him a job in an Edinburgh firm of architects. But when he realised he had to work, start at the bottom and work his way up, that didn't agree, so he left there. And eventually, in desperation, his mother and Bill Sterling, who by this time had inherited the family land and the estate, a very large estate at Keir, near Dunblane, they sent him to America to ranch. A family friend had a ranch in El Paso. And this is where David was when war was declared. So he came back to the UK in late September 1939. He was commissioned into the Scots Guards, where he gained a reputation for laziness, for indolence. He was nicknamed the giant sloth. And it was really, yet again, Bill Sterling who came to David's rescue. And Bill Sterling really is the unsung hero of the SAS. 
that he really is the brains behind the SAS. And in May 1940, he established the Special Training Centre in the northwest of Scotland on land owned by Lord Lovett, the 15th Lord Lovett, the Stirling's cousin. And Bill Stirling and Lord Lovett were the chief instructors. It was dubbed the Guerrilla Training School. It was where throughout the summer and autumn of 1940, hundreds of the newly formed commandos were trained in the basics of guerrilla warfare. And David actually was one of the pupils. The myth is that he was one of the instructors. No, 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 no. He was just one of the pupils. Bill had been in the Scots Guards. He was asked to rescue David because David and the Scots Guards were incompatible. And he brought David up to Lock Islet, where the special training centre was. And he was actually his adjutant for a while before eventually he joined Number 8 Commando in November 1940. Let's get ahead to the founding of the SAS, the Special Air Service that people usually associate with David Sterling. The first mission was a bit of a disaster, wasn't it, for the SAS? And you're suddenly making me think it might not be... um, just unlucky. Ah, no, absolutely it wasn't unlucky. Now, Bill Sterling, he was in Cairo in the summer of 1941, and with David, it was the two of them who founded the SAS. The joke was that the SAS stood for Sterling and Sterling. November the 3rd, 1941, Bill was recalled to England, and that took away David's intellectual and emotional crutch. A fascinating letter that I quote in the book that he wrote to his mother on the eve of that first operation. And he admitted that he hadn't been this homesick since he'd been at Ampleforth. So that was his emotional state. And he cited one of the reasons being that Bill was no longer in Cairo. Now, the first mission, as you alluded to, Dan, was a disaster of the 55 men who went on it. 34 were killed or captured. Sterling was actually given the choice on the eve of the operation to abort it because they knew that what would be one of the worst storms in a generation was moving across that part of Egypt and into Libya and absolutely not conducive to a parachute operation of this type. The operation was that they would parachute behind German lines and attack a string of airfields. Sterling was given that choice, but he decided to press ahead with it. I've no doubt that had Bill Sterling still been in Cairo, he would have said no, it's too risky, let's live to fight another day. And the mission went ahead and it was a disaster. The SAS came very close to being disbanded at that stage. That it wasn't was down to the genius of Paddy Main. Paddy Main was one of the first recruits into the SAS, an unbelievable soldier, Stephanie had his demons, extraordinary bouts of anger. I've met people that served alongside him. He was terrifying to friend and enemy alike. Why was it that Paddy Main was so important in this early stage? Well, he was someone made for guerrilla warfare. He was both mentally and physically exceptionally agile. I've spoken to men who served with Paddy, and of course he wasn't fearless, but he had a very good control of himself. And after the failure of the first parachute raid in November 1941, it was decided to partner with the Long Range Desert Group. Now, these are the pioneers, if you like, of special forces warfare in the desert, but their speciality was reconnaissance more than raiding, and they were wonderful navigators. So they transported in their trucks 
the SAS, the 21 remaining soldiers, to two airfields at Tamit and Sirte, quite close to the Libyan coast. And Main and Sterling divided and took two raiding parties. Sterling had no success. Paddy Main destroyed 24 aircraft with his five men and also shot up an officer's mess, if you like, an air crew's mess and destroyed a fuel dump. Two weeks later, both raiding parties returned to the same airfield. Sterling again had no joy. Paddy Main this time destroyed 27 aircraft. So in the space of two weeks on two raids, Main and his small band of raiders had destroyed more than 50 German aircraft. Sterling had nothing to show for his efforts. You listen to Dan Snow's history here, talking about the birth of the SAS and David Sterling. More coming up. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and over on the History Hit Warfare podcast, I bring you cutting-edge military histories from around the world. Why was Sitting Bull such a remarkable leader? What was Napoleon's greatest ever battle? How did the Cuban Missile Crisis almost turn the Cold War hot? And who dropped the world's largest nuclear bomb on the Arctic? Through interviews with world-leading historians, policy experts, and the veterans who served, we find the answers to these questions and so much more. So come and join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front lines of military history. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. As we go on, you argue that he jeopardised his men's lives on those raids and later raids. Have you got any other examples? Obviously, that first raid in November 1941... He was very reckless in pressing ahead with that. The best example is the Benghazi raid of September 1942, when Sterling, who, how can I put it, he was not the most discreet when it came to military secrets. And it was well known that the raid on Benghazi, which was ill-thought-out, ill-prepared, far too large, a force of 200 traveling from a desert oasis to the Libyan port of Benghazi. And the GHQ warned Sterling that the intelligence showed that the enemy were waiting for them. Sterling ignored this. He pressed ahead with this attack. 
Interestingly, the Long Range Desert Group, who were accompanying the SAS on this raid, withdrew, decided that they were too late in arriving. They believed that the raid had been compromised, so they refused to press on with the raid on the outskirts of Benghazi. But Sterling went ahead with it and they ran straight into an ambush. About half a dozen men were killed. Uh, another dozen or so were wounded or captured. And it was a complete fiasco. And again, this was an example of Sterling's ill-discipline and his recklessness and his pursuit, not of glory, but it was an adventure. He was an immature man, I argue, in the book. And in contrast, Paddy Main, frequently I heard veterans tell me that Paddy Main, far from being the reckless, gung-ho character that is latterly being portrayed, was very judicious and carefully examined every operation prior to its launch to ensure that all possible risks had been eliminated. Sterling wasn't like that. He must have had something because he stayed in command and there were successes. What what did you put those down to? Was it all Paddy Main? Was it all the officers and other staff work? I would say it was mainly Main, uh, another officer, Bill Fraser, and they had very good recruits. When the SAS was formed in August 1941, there were six officers and 60 men. The men came from the commandos and they were some of the best guerrilla fighters in the British Army at that time, the likes of Red Sea Kings, Johnny Cooper, Bob Bennett, Pat Riley. And David Sterling was physically brave because he was not cut out for guerrilla warfare, as I said, temperamentally or physically. And he really withdrew from the SAS, both physically and psychologically. And by that, I mean, increasingly from about October, even before the first operation, he was spending most of his time in Cairo. And there was another brother, Peter, who I mentioned earlier, who worked as a secretary at the British Embassy in Cairo and had a flat in a very uh, swanky district. And so David based himself there. And it was Paddy Main, who really was the, the leader of the SAS at their base at Cabrit, 80 miles to the east of Cairo. David Sterling recognised this. I quote him in the book as he says that he saw that Paddy Main was becoming the de facto leader of the SAS. So one way Sterling did try to claw back some measure of control was in January 1942. He appointed Paddy Main the training officer. They had a new 50 recruits from the Free French arrived who turned out to be formidable soldiers, but they needed training. And he tasked Paddy Main with that. Absolute absurd decision, bearing in mind that in the previous month, Paddy Main had destroyed over 50 German aircraft. Sterling had a big fat zero to his name. So what did he do? He takes his most effective fighter, his officer, and appoints him training officer. And of course, Sterling then went off in another couple of raids to the port of Borat and to Benghazi. This was his first Benghazi raid. Came up empty-handed again and so was obliged to bring back Maine. And what did Paddy Maine do? On his first raid back, he destroyed 15 aircraft. So I think that had Maine not returned from that first raid in November 1941, the SAS would have disintegrated. 
It was Maine who kept it alive. And David Sterling really was a peripheral figure. This is electrifying stuff. There'll be many who revere David Sterling. Tell me about him being captured and actually Paddy Maine then formally taking command of the SAS. Well, I suggest in the book, Dan, that David Sterling subconsciously probably wanted to be captured. It was his way out. In September 1942, the SAS had expanded from a unit to become a regiment. And David Sterling was really out of his depth here. And in November 1942, he was admitted to hospital suffering from conjunctivitis and desert sores which is actually a much nastier condition than it sounds. It's really his skin condition becomes inflamed and it can become quite serious. So physically, he was in a bad shape, but mentally he was in a bad shape too. And in fact, I discovered some signals sent from London, sent from Mountbatten, instructing Sterling to come back to London because there was a reorganisation going on of not just the SAS, but special forces in combined operations in general. Sterling ignored that order. He ignored that because he didn't want anyone in London to see just what a state he was in. But he also feared that he was going to have his baby, if you like, the SAS, the only thing that had given him any purpose in life, taken away from him. So what he did was instead he went to the one place where no one could contact him up the blue, which was the slang for the interior of a desert. So he led a uh, squadron of the uh, SAS into the desert. Paddy Main had been operating behind lines with great success throughout October 1942, harassing the Germans as they withdrew west from El Alamein. And Sterling came up with this harebrained idea of becoming the first unit from the 8th Army to link up with the 1st Army, which had landed in November 1942 in Algeria, Morocco, Operation Torch, and was fighting its way east down through Tunisia. And it was a pointless operation. There was nothing to be obtained by it. But Sterling really, there was little else for him to do. It was purely a an ego trip, if you like. And so off he sets. There were five jeeps, 14 men in January 1943. They went through something called the Gabies Gap, which is a, a sort of a narrow bottleneck not too far from the Tunisian coast. And they, going along a desert road, they passed through one German column. Now, bearing in mind, everyone's covered in dust, so it was quite hard to identify who's who. I spoke to three men who were with Sterling on this patrol who said that the Germans certainly looked at them quite quizzically. And who are this small band of men? A few miles later, they turned off the road and drove into a wadi, a dry riverbed, for a few hundred yards, dismounted from their jeeps. And uh, Sterling said, right, let's get our heads down and rest for a while. We've been driving through the night. Now, inexplicably, He posted no sentries, despite the fact they knew that there were Germans in the area. They were caught and uh, caught quite easily. The Phantom Major, the Pimpernel of a desert, as he liked to be known, was caught by the Germans without a shot being fired. And that was the end of David Sterling's war. He then spent two and a half years as a POW, where he once more imperiled the lives of his men with these crackpot escape schemes. Not a fan. 
You're not a fan of David Sterling. <laughs> I've interviewed some of the last surviving SAS veterans. Who have you talked to to come up with this bold revisionist view of him? Must have interviewed about 70, 75 SAS veterans, also several members of a long-range desert group who didn't think very highly of David Sterling or the SAS as it was in the desert days. It became a very effective fighting force in uh, Italy and France and Germany from 43 to 45. No coincidence that that was when it was under the command of Paddy Main. So I've spoken to dozens of men, but I've also re-examined the operational reports of the SAS and also examined, more importantly, the war diaries and the correspondence from the Long Range Desert Group, from GHQ. And there, there is a treasure trove of information just detailing the lack of discipline, the lack of organisation, the poor logistics of Sterling. He drove Montgomery mad too in uh, September 1942 because it wouldn't be accurate to say it was his background because his brother Bill Sterling was obviously from the same family and from the same class but he was a fine soldier and he didn't have David's conceit and willful arrogance it was just a characteristic of David and I think as I said stemmed from his insecurity his immaturity so it was putting that together, but also just rereading the accounts of other men, whether it's Johnny Cooper's book, who was one of the originals, whether it was Malcolm Pradle, the SAS medical officer in the deserts, and reading between the lines, because what one has to understand is that well, there is now what I describe it as the cult of the SAS. So they're almost untouchable. And David Sterling was partly responsible for that. He created this aura, this myth that didn't exist in the war and didn't exist immediately after the war. But David Sterling was physically, he was quite an intimidating character. He was about six foot four, not particularly broad, but he had people have described his penetrating stare and this way that he would sort of stoop over you. And interestingly, the word that kept cropping up in people's descriptions of David Sterling and the effect he had on them was, I fell under his spell. It was just something magnetic about him. And of course, this didn't work on Bill Sterling, his brother, and it didn't work on Paddy Main. And they were two of the only people who were able to resist this. But this has been the main reason why Sterling has been able to get away for so long with this persona of a phantom major that no one's challenged. And of course, one has to remember that in the 1950s, we were a much more deferential society. He came from the upper class and working class soldiers who I spoke to would tell me, oh, yeah, they'd say Sterling, he was okay. And that was it, really. Whereas get them on the subject of Paddy Main or even Bill Sterling, they would wax lyrical about their qualities. But with Sterling, it was always... He's okay. But of course, one of the reasons for that is that very few people really knew him because he didn't spend much time at Cabrit with the SAS. He spent most of his time in Cairo in his brother's flat. You say he fell out of Montgomery. What was Montgomery's view of him? Oh, that he was unruly, impertinent, and someone who needed to be controlled. And in fact, that is why Sterling began to lose control of the SAS because Montgomery said, I'm not having this private army 
running around doing what it likes in the desert. They're going to come under the formal structure of the Eighth Army. And Sterling really didn't like that. And the great John Hackett was an account of his witnessing a contretemps between Montgomery and Sterling. So impertinent is the best word to describe Montgomery's view of David Sterling. Love it. Thank you very much. What's the book called? The subtitle is The Phony Major, a play on, obviously, The Phantom Major. I hope, Dan, if I can just say that um, I'm not kind towards David Sterling, but I don't think one should be kind towards him because he has manipulated the truth to his own ends and he's got away with it for too long. Worst of all, he has quite deliberately disparaged the reputation of Paddy Maine and diminished the achievements of his brother, Bill. So what I hope people will take from this book is a new and a more positive opinion of Paddy Maine and the realisation that it was really Bill Sterling and not David Sterling who was the brains behind the SAS. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. You've reached the end of another episode. Hope you're still awake. Appreciate your loyalty. Sticking through to the end. If you fancied doing us a favour here at History Hit, I would be incredibly grateful if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Please head over there and do that. It really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please head over there. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Do that. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.